0: Another guest speaker, uh, excellent chance to hear from a technology superstar and expert, um, Michael Hurlston is our speaker today. He's the CEO of a tech firm called Synaptics. Um, Michael, let's forget the intros. Let you go straight in, tell your story, and and hear your presentation, and then at the end we'll uh, we'll do some Q and A and just see where the conversation takes us.
1: All right. Well, I'm going to quickly take you through and bore everybody with with my background, and then get into two facets of entrepreneurship. If I can say the word properly, um, one is leadership and the other is these ROIs. And uh, Aaron was good enough to fill me in that you guys have been learning a little bit about ROIs and I thought I'd give you some some real world examples to, to, chew, to chew on a little bit. So, okay, so just a quick thing about me. So who am I? I was actually born in Stanford Hospital. Um, Palo Alto, California. I'm actually a first generation U.S. citizen. My parents both came from Europe. It's interesting if you know anything about world politics. My father is English, my mother is Irish, and the English and Irish don't get along very well, but somehow my parents have been married for close to 50 years, so something went right somewhere in the political front. Uh, my father is actually an engineer. Uh, he came over to the United States just before I was born and uh, at the time there was a European brain drain the Silicon Valley couldn't source enough engineers locally and like they do now they're sourcing a lot of engineers from all over the world at that point in time it was primarily from Europe as opposed to to Asia okay I actually graduated from UC Davis so I'm familiar with a lot of the things that you see, all those schools changed a lot since I was there. I was there a very, very long time ago, as you can probably tell from my gray hair. Uh, I graduated actually with a master's in science and electrical engineering and an MBA, which has proven to be somewhat of a useful combination as I went, gone through my career. My first 10 years of my career actually was in startups. So interestingly enough, this contra- concept of entrepreneurship that your learning is very familiar to me. And I went, I was sort of a serial startup guy for whatever reason, I got very lucky. The first four companies that I was involved with either had an IPO or were acquired by another company. So we we talk about exits and I had four exits in a row Then I tried to do my own company. I was a member of these companies, uh, part of the team. Then I tried to do my own company as a, a startup and that was a dismal failure. So whatever was going on, my mind touch kind of left at the absolute critical moment. And that's what this bullet is about. I founded my own semiconductor startup. I played most of my career in electrical engineering and making and manufacturing of semiconductors or chips. I have started my own company in 1997 and that was a, an absolute dismal failure. Everything that you learn in these MBA classes that I took at MBA in Davis, I did the exact opposite and it didn't work out very well. So I then joined a company called Broadcom. Uh, this was a fairly big company. I tried to join that company to learn some of the fundamentals that you're learning in this class. I'd never been part of a larger company before. And I joined that to really find out a lot more about the fundamentals of running business, the fundamentals of entrepreneurship. Uh, you can see today it's one of the biggest companies in the semiconductor landscape, about $22 billion in revenue. But the time I joined, it was about $1 billion in revenue, actually a little bit less than $1 billion. And in our business, that's relatively small or at least medium-sized. Um, it was interesting because I found out there, Broadcom was was a company that you can read about it. One of the founders is a fairly wealthy guy, and we'll get into that in a minute. He's got buildings named after him in UCLA uh, and UC Irvine, Henry Samueli. And the other guy, again, you can read about this. He's a kind of a famous, uh, famous CEO. He got in a lot of legal problems and things like that. And uh, the, co- the company when I began was very much a cult of personality, a lot of yelling and screaming. So it was more like a chaotic startup than the chaotic startups that I'd come from. I'm not sure I learned a whole lot about how to run a business. My primary business at, at uh, Broadcom was wireless, so wireless chipsets. We started Wi Fi, and obviously, all of you now know all about Wi Fi technology, Bluetooth, GPS. At the time, When we started in 2001, these were not household words. Nobody really knew what Wi-Fi was. Nobody certainly knew what Bluetooth was. And uh, this was one of the most successful businesses in the history of semiconductor because we hit the right products at absolutely the right time and intersected the right end markets. And I'll get into a little bit of that story later on, but it was a huge rocket ride from nothing. We started that business. We had no revenue. And when we grew it to over $3 billion in uh, in about 10 years. So really, really fast growth because of the intersection of the market and the technology. Uh, my first CEO job came just a couple of years ago. I joined a company called Finisar. That was an optical communications company. We made The plug-in modules that go in and and everything that runs over longer distances now in telecommunications actually uses light rather than electricity. And Finisar is one of the primary manufacturers of optical modules that transmit the light or receive the light on one end of a link or another. That was a fairly big company, 14,000 employees, about a billion, billion and a half in revenue. Um, I ended up selling that company Uh, for $3.2 billion in uh, November of 2018, which was again an interesting, as you think about ROIs, we went through a very detailed ROI analysis around this and said, it's probably better for us to sell the company to somebody than try to make it alone. And that has proven out at least in the near term the last year or so to be the right answer. And now finally, I'm, I'm here at a company called Synaptics. I joined a little over a year ago, The company is uh, about 1,800 employees, so much smaller from an employee base, but just about the same size in terms of revenue. So a lot of boring details, but it gives you some sense about where I came from and my sense of entrepreneurship and and kind of my journey uh, along the way. So uh, enough on that. So I, I think there are two aspects I want to talk about today around entrepreneurship. One is an intangible thing. And that's the quality of leadership, what makes a good leader. And the other is more tangible. And that's something that that, uh, Aaron has told me you guys are learning, it's around the ROIs. And I wanted to give you again, some specific examples, real world examples about how we think about ROIs, maybe in slightly different situations to the ones that you're thinking about uh, in your classwork. Okay, so I wanted wanted to to talk first about a set of people. So here's uh, Meg Whitman. Martin Luther King, uh Gandhi, Mother Teresa, Angela Merkel, uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, Steve Jobs is there, uh, Bill Belichick the famous coach for the New England Patriots and Winston Churchill And then Oprah Winfrey. Now you can see all sorts of different people. You see men, you see women, you see people of color, you see old people, you see younger people, all sorts of of different people from all sorts of walks of life. Some are quiet, humble, some are loud and bombastic, some have very rough edges, some are very politically savvy. But despite all of those differences, we can apply one term to all of that, And that's, they're all leaders. Okay, so all these different people, and all of them exhibit different qualities of leadership. All of them are leaders in different ways. And I wanted to talk just a little bit about how I think about that. Because anytime you're an entrepreneur, you're actually a leader first. If you're not leading, if you're not leading either with your idea If you're not leading a group of people toward a goal, which is a successful enterprise, a successful business, you're not going to be successful. I think that you have to be a leader in order to win and are all sorts of different kinds of leaders. There are different faces on leaders, as I just showed, different attributes to leaders. But these are 10 different attributes that I think about when I think about leadership, um and we'll go through in a minute how some of the people on the previous slide exhibit one or more of these qualities so i think you have to be a visionary um in order to be a leader you have to have some vision you have to be a listener you have to be able to listen to people listen to inputs you have to be a bit of an actor you have to be somebody that's been willing to get out in front and 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 put on a show and maybe not be always uh, reacting to the emotion of the moment, be inspirational, you have to inspire people and get people rallied behind you and behind the cause. You have to be a team builder, build a set of teams and and get a variety of different skills together to make a cohesive unit. I think you have to have some humility. It can't be uh, all about ego. You have to have a little bit of humbleness and understand that you don't know what you don't know, and bring in people, advisors that can help you understand some of the complexity and teach you about some of the areas that you may not be particularly versed in. Attention to detail. This is something that gets overlooked, I think, quite a bit. As I think people think about leaders. The best leaders are able to scale from the very big picture, but then really get into the detail of an operation, of a problem of a personnel situation, whatever it might be, and ask the detailed questions to gain a specific understanding. If you're always floating at a high level, I don't—I never think you understand the problem. And if you don't understand the problem, you can't arrive at solutions. You have to be a communicator, I think. You have to be able to talk to people. You have to be accessible so people can talk to you. As I said earlier, you wanna be a listener. So if you're a listener, You want to be in a mode where you're accessible and can hear people's inputs, but then you also have to be able to transmit and make sure that you're communicating your ideas out. I think good leaders are by nature optimistic. Um, Nobody wants to listen to a pessimist and hear how the sky is falling all the time, but I think the great leaders are traditionally optimistic, and then I think they have courage. and and mostly this is about courage in their own belief, courage to go forward where other people might be saying that the idea is not the best or not the the smartest, have really conviction in, in their beliefs. And the leaders that I just showed, the pictures that I showed before this, some of them are really, really strong in one of these areas and maybe don't have some of the other pieces. I think most leaders have A combination of these and and some might be very strong in in one person and and less so less strong Uh, but on balance good leaders have some element of all of these different attributes just quickly I thought what I would do is is talk about a handful of them not all but a handful and uh, try to ascribe one of the leaders that I just showed to that particular attribute so the first one is courage. Uh, You have to have some courage in yourself, courage in your beliefs to really be, I think, a great leader. And the person that I chose that I thought embodied this the best is is Gandhi. I mean, it doesn't maybe come across as the first idea that you'd have when you think of courage. But talk about a deep conviction in his belief set. Gandhi was unbelievably courageous and was willing to swim upstream against a set of ideas and lead through peace rather than through through any sort of violence. And I think some, some quotes that have been ascribed to Gandhi that I think really show this idea of courage, there'd be nothing to frighten you if you refuse to be afraid. And then a no uttered from the deepest conviction is better than a yes merely uttered to please or worse to avoid trouble. And this last bullet, I think, is is an important one. Sometimes, as leaders, the most difficult word to say is no. It's very easy to say yes to an idea, yes to promoting somebody in an organization, yes to doing something, because you know if somebody's coming to you with an idea, they they typically want a yes. And I do think one of the most difficult things that leaders have to say is no, and you have to say no a lot in order to be successful. Gandhi was particularly good at that. And I, and I think this is the right way to think about the no is you have to believe it. You can't be no and 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 be dismissive in that no. You have to have some grounding, some basis when you give a no. And that's something that I try to do when people have Various ideas or concepts that they want to propose. If it doesn't make sense to me, I think it's disingenuous to just be dismissive and say, hey, forget it. You have to give some rationale reason because you want to encourage people to come forward the next time with a set of ideas. So, this is the idea of of courage, I think, in a nutshell. Humility. So, humility is another one that maybe you don't often think about in terms of a leader. The person I chose for this one maybe is a little more obvious and that's Mother Teresa, right? One of the great people in history in terms of how she led and she led largely through being very humble and people could get behind her causes in India because because of her humility. And uh, a quote that was again ascribed to her is, if you're humble, nothing will touch you, neither praise nor disgrace because you know what you are. If you're blamed, You will not be discouraged if they call you a saint. You will not put yourself on a pedestal, which is ironic because ultimately she did become a saint. Um, And this, I think, again, as a leader, as you think about these qualities, being humble is something that's a little bit hard to understand. You often see these leaders, perhaps our president, our current president is embodying this in a big way. Is just a, a huge outsized ego and not having the capability, the ability to listen to people that are around them. I think humility is understanding that you're not the smartest person in the room, not, underst- not being aware, self-aware enough to know that you're not gonna be the one that has all the answers and being able to draw on a set of advisors, a set of people that may know a topic better than you do, may know an issue better than you do. And the great leaders were able to be able to, to, to humble themselves enough to draw out ideas from others and make sure that folks are bringing forward ideas that they can evaluate and listen to. The next one is inspirational. Uh, good leaders, I, I do think are always inspirational and you have to be either inspiring as a speaker, inspiring as a person, expi- inspiring as a visionary, Person I picked here again, I think, relatively obvious. Martin Luther King, one of the best speakers um, that I've heard. I, I, Martin Luther King was dead by by the time I uh, was born, but certainly, if you listen to recordings of the way he addressed people, it's unbelievable. And a couple a quote that ascribed to Martin Luther is Martin Luther King: "If you can't fly, then run." If you can't run, then walk. If you can't walk, then crawl. But whatever you do, you have to keep moving forward. And I I think he is a very inspirational leader. Um, And I think as you think about leadership, as you think about getting into entrepreneurial roles, inspiration and bringing your team along on the journey is one of the key attributes that is most important, I think, to leadership. And, and you see it all over and over again in the, in the workplace. If people aren't rallied, if they don't believe in the cause, they don't believe in the idea, they don't believe in the company, your company isn't gonna be successful no matter how small, how big it is. And uh, I, have, I had a, a real interesting issue here coming in here about a year ago. The company had been in a bit of a death spiral. A lot of bad things had happened. We'd had a lot of uh, turnover in the company. A lot of people had left. Uh, I think I've been able to rally people to the cause over the course of the last year, and that's resulted in things that are very visible, like a stock price improvement. And things are less visible in terms of morale, in terms of people sort of believing the company is headed in the right direction. So, being inspiring, I think, is a quality of a great leader. Anyone that's that's you know less obvious is being action-oriented. I think leaders have to be decisive, have to be willing to make decisions, have to be willing to take action. There's too often a tendency perhaps to sit back and I call it analysis paralysis where you just sit back and and think about something. I say often I'd rather make wrong decisions and course correct than make no decision. So I think the great leaders are willing to take action when needed and are faster decision-makers and faster decision-making in my mind is what action orientation is all about. I also think that good leaders have to get, as I say, an oar in the water, have to be willing to row the boat. A lot of times you can see leaders that want to point and I'm sure you've all been in, in projects where you have a named group leader and that person, either he or she, is just busy trying to tell people what to do and isn't willing to pick up the pen and do any of the work themselves. That never works. That never gets people rallied. You have to be willing to get an oar in the water and do work yourself if you're going to be a great leader. The person I picked here was actually Bonaparte, Napoleon Bonaparte, um, an interesting guy, To <laughs> Two quotes that he said uh, that kind of embody the way he thought about leadership. If you want the thing done well, do it yourself. I guess he was the first one to to say that. And then the stupid speak of the past, the wise of the present, and the fools of the future. So very much present in his thinking, a person of today. I'm not sure I, I believe in that quote entirely. I do think you have to have some vision and be thinking of the future, but certainly bearing the past. And being willing to walk away from mistakes and being able to move forward is an important attribute and set of qualities around a good leader. Optimistic. As I said in, in when I was li- listing off the qualities, I think a good leader is an optimistic person. Nobody wants to listen to a pessimist. Again, I'm sure you've all been around people that have the, the famous glass half empty view of the world. And those people generally are not a lot of fun to be around. They're certainly not particularly inspirational. And when you think of rallying to a cause, it's very difficult to get people behind what I, I think of a pessimist. And um, you know, I find optimism works. I, I don't wanna paint an overly rosy picture as I go out and communicate to employees what's going on, but certainly I would characterize myself as an optimist, and I believe in people, I believe in our company, I believe in our ability to drive success, and I think that's what an optimist is about. It's about self-belief, it's about belief in others, it's about belief in good. Interestingly, the person I I chose here was Winston Churchill, right? And, and as those of you who saw, it was a couple of years back, The Darkest Hour, uh, Winston Churchill was facing an incredible crisis in World War II, with the Germans dropping bombs on the United Kingdom, as many of you know. And um, I think Churchill would get on the radio and would speak very optimistically about the Britain's chance for success. And and really, I think a lot of people listened to Churchill and believed, even though they were under this incredible attack incredible pressure from the Germans that they were going to find a way forward and he really inspired the British people and eventually of course they prevailed you know he said this himself he said for my for myself I am an optimist it does not seem to be much use to be anything else and and I think that's that's absolutely right so I love the way that Churchill thought about things, and he really did lead the Britons through one of the darkest periods in, in their history. Okay, uh, visionary. Again, this probably is a relatively obvious choice. If you remember the 10 people that I put up on the screen, um, very famously, Steve Jobs was a great visionary. And a lot of things that were attributed to Apple and the technology arena really came from Jobs um I worked very closely with Apple and had the opportunity to work with Steve a couple of times. In fact, there was a very famous incident one time where I was in Death Valley on a vacation, and cell phones don't work particularly well in the Death Valley, as many of you know. I was actually in, uh, I think it's called Badwater, the lowest part of, of Death Valley, and my cell phone rang with an unknown caller, and it turned out to be Steve Jobs and they just launched the first iPad. And I, as I mentioned a earlier ago, I made these Wi-Fi and Bluetooth chips and we had a close partnership with Apple and there was a problem with the Wi-Fi chip. And of course, if you know anything about Steve Jobs, not only was he uh, a visionary, he also had a very notorious temper and he en- ended up yelling at me for the next 30 minutes. And I was kind of rooted to the spot in the Death Valley being afraid if I move one foot in one direction or another the phone was going to drop, and he'd think I'd hung up on him as he was busy uh, ripping me a new behind. But he was not very happy about the performance of our Wi Fi and Bluetooth chips in the iPad. There was a lot of problems with them getting online. So he was definitely not particularly happy. But Jobs is, of course, one of the great visionaries. Um, he, actually, if you look at Apple, they didn't necessarily. They weren't necessarily first with an idea, they sort of perfected the idea. They they notoriously are kind of copycats, where things like touch in a cell phone had been done before or the idea of a portable musical player had been done before. But what Apple did was make the experience really great and Steve was able to figure out how to do that in a way that was extremely elegant. Um, You know, one, one quote that he had, you can't connect the dots looking forward You can only connect them looking backwards. So you have to trust that the dots will somehow connect in your future. You have to trust in something, your gut, destiny, life, and karma, whatever. This approach has never let me down and has made all the difference in my life. Great quote from from Jobs. and, and And I think as we think about modern visionaries, he certainly is the guy. He's gotten a whole company, the most valuable company in the world, the most successful company in the world, It was driven, it's still riding off the vision that he put out there. Um, Tim Cook, the new CEO has come in and driven a lot of execution, but really the vision is still the tailwind of what Jobs put forth in all those years coming back to Apple the second time around. Uh, One more is is, uh, attention to detail. Okay, so um, again, as we think about the leaders and the people involved in, in leadership, uh, attention to detail, for those of you who follow pro sports, probably the most legendary guy is, is Bill Belichick. And the uh, New England Patriots, for those of you who follow sports, have had an incredible track record over years and years. They're not doing particularly well this year. Maybe it's because they, they got rid of their quarterback. But Belichick has been phenomenal. And the reason that he, everybody says he's so successful is his attention to detail. And this was another player's description about the way the New England Patriots run practice. They don't waste time. There's no time wasted and everything's efficient. We can get our work done. And the attention to detail is something that I've never experienced. You know, uh, Belichick knows the rule book. He knows every detail in the rule book and is able to exploit that to his advantage. And as leaders, I think it's very important, as I said earlier, to have some attention to detail. You have to know and be able to willing to get down into what we call the weeds and understand problems. Because if you're gonna always surf at a high level and not be willing to get into the details, I don't think that you can understand problems and ultimately you can't be successful. That attention to detail is, appears in almost every great leader to some extent or another. Kind of in conclusion on this part, you know, great leaders are great collaborators. I think the really the best leaders, even people with notorious tempers like Steve Jobs are able to surround themselves with great people, build great teams. So get ideas from a bunch of different sources, whether they're people on the team or external sources, but great leaders really know how to collaborate. And as you think about the idea of entrepreneurship Entrepreneurship, maybe more than anything else, is about collaboration, being able to work with people. And, and in working with people, you have the greatest chance of success in bringing an idea to, to the fore. Um, so I would really advise as you think about entrepreneurship, think about leadership, think first about collaboration. A couple more before we get into the, the question session. I just want to talk a little bit about practical ROIs. I thought this was a great example that that uh, Professor Anderson is in the middle of, and I, I it was really interesting as he was describing some of the material that you're going through, but I wanted to talk about it maybe on a, a more higher level about how we think about ROIs here in the company. It's something every day we talk about. It's a term we use over and over again. We actually just recently bought two companies, um, Synaptics as a company went out and acquired two other companies that we thought were going to help our business portfolio and our business prospects going forward. So as we thought about buying those companies, you know, what did we think about? And this, this example actually comes from earlier in my career. Uh, we bought a, a small, this was a, a different situation. We bought a company called G2 Microsoft Systems. This is when I was at Broadcom. And Hichu Microsystems is actually in Australia. We use something called a discounted cash flow. And I don't know if you guys have looked at that, but it's sort of projecting out a company's future cash flow. You sort of forecast what they're able to do, what, what profit they're going to be able to generate, and then you discount that back to time zero using something that we call a hurdle rate. And we went out and bought this, and of course, all the best math sometimes results in a bad outcome. And in this particular case, it was a very bad outcome. Um, great thing was I got a bunch of trips to Australia as we went out and evaluated this team. Sydney is a beautiful place for, for those of you who haven't been there. But in this particular case, our discounted fat cash flow didn't work particularly well. Why didn't it work particularly well? Because G2 Microsystems was going trying to go into a fairly speculative, New market, one that didn't have a lot of history around it, didn't have a lot of things on which we could base our analysis. So we had to make a lot of assumptions in the forward-looking revenue of the company. And the market didn't really materialize. I use the word here, stunted. It, it, It materialized, but probably not close to the degree that we thought and then we had to spend significantly more than we thought to develop the products that G2 Microsystems had started. So in this particular case, we did all the right fundamentals that you're learning. We did all the ROI analysis. And, and even with perfect math and perfect uh, understanding of the systems, we ended up at a very bad outcome. This was uh, a company that really went nowhere for me in, in Broadcom. And, we eventually had to write it off. We had to take what's called a goodwill charge and write it off. Something that's probably closer to what you're doing here, which is, okay, are you gonna take on a new project? And, and that's around starting a company around an idea, around uh, uh, when you're in a company, do you wanna take on a new project? This is more of a traditional ROI. Let me tell you a kind of a better story. This was an interesting one. The way that my previous company Broadcom really made its landmark was by combining these two technologies, Wi-Fi and Bluetooth that you're all familiar with into a single semiconductor device. Now, we had started in Wi-Fi, it was an interesting history. We'd started in in Wi-Fi technology and the primary market for Wi-Fi was laptops. And laptops, as many of you know, the key component in a laptop is an Intel microprocessor. And Intel was starting to manufacture their own Wi-Fi chips. So we would be the Wi-Fi solution inside a, an Intel laptop. And then Intel got the bright idea that looked, we can make these Wi-Fi chips too. And so we Broadcom were really pushed out and we were in the danger in danger of going out of business because our core market was disappearing by means of a competitive threat that we really couldn't deal with, that Intel was able to go sell to Dell, to HP, to IBM at the time, Lenovo, this concept of, look, we have the microprocessor, we're gonna essentially give you the Wi-Fi solution for free. So that's very difficult to compete with free. Um, We were kind of backed into a corner. The thing that we did was we figured out, hey, maybe we can get into the smartphone market. The smartphone market at the time wasn't really obvious. It was kind of a small thing. Nobody really was using smartphones. We thought, okay, well maybe we can get into this market. Bluetooth was very prevalent because you already had the concept of a headset. And so we said, okay, well maybe if we throw Wi-Fi in for free we can get Wi-Fi adoption to happen in the smartphone. And of course the rest was history we did A traditional ROI analysis on this, we kind of estimated our upfront engineering costs. We looked at the future market projections, both for smartphones and for how we thought Wi-Fi would end up in smartphones, which we actually assumed a very low attach rate. We assumed that the Wi-Fi wasn't gonna be that common in smartphones, but maybe if it got in a few of them, we'd end up doing okay. And of course, as many of you know, the outcome was, was unbelievably good. Every phone today has Wi-Fi technology. And again, 10 years ago when we embarked on this, we thought that no one would ever really use Wi-Fi. The only reason that they were, we could get any traction with the idea was because we already had Bluetooth and Bluetooth was already very common. And we thought that if we just threw in the Wi-Fi for free, maybe we'd get some people to use it. And I'm sure all of you now, as you use your smartphones, Wi-Fi is the most prevalent technology that's used other than the cellular base pad. So we really got an overwhelming success on this. And, you know, frankly, no one could have anticipated the growth of smartphones, no one could have anticipated how well Wi-Fi took off. So on this one, we grossly undercalled the ROI analysis, but it worked out incredibly favorably. I just want to give one last Kind of funny story, and this is how business actually gets done. Okay, so as you think about entrepreneurship, and you go through all the science of ROIs, and learn about cam sam analysis, and you learn about how to analyze different markets, is kind of a very funny story. So, at the time we were embarking on our cell phone technology, the number one smartphone maker was BlackBerry, and maybe hopefully all of you guys remember BlackBerry. This was the most common smartphone at the time. It was number one in the market. They had these little keyboards and uh, the email receiving device of choice at that time was BlackBerry. And we had knocked over every single smartphone manufacturer in the world. Other than BlackBerry, BlackBerry was the number one in the market. We had been able to penetrate Apple, Motorola, Samsung, LG, uh, you name it. Many of these guys are actually out of business, but we couldn't get into BlackBerry. And I had worked very hard with my engineering team. We had essentially our product was all set to go in the BlackBerry phone and it was agreed to, everything was gonna happen. I brought my chairman, the guy that I mentioned before, this fellow called Henry Samueli. And uh, as I mentioned, Henry is, is, is kind of a luminary, certainly in Southern California, where he's got buildings in UCLA and Irvine that are named after, particularly engineering buildings. The other famous thing about Henry is he owns a hockey team. He owns the Anaheim Mighty Ducks. And so we had this kind of what I'd call a handshake meeting between Henry, who the, uh, the head of uh, BlackBerry wanted to meet, and the head of BlackBerry is a guy called Jim Basili. Now, Jim Basili also wanted to get into hockey, he wanted to own a hockey team. Uh, BlackBerry was located in Ottawa, and Ottawa, some time back, had actually lost their hockey team to. Uh, I think they ended up becoming the Minnesota Stars, and uh, he wanted to take the Phoenix Coyotes, a team now that currently plays in Phoenix, and he wanted to move that team up to Ottawa, and so the meeting started very friendly, and okay, good, 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 and at one point, uh, Jim Basile, the BlackBerry CEO, asked Henry, hey, are you going to vote for me in terms of moving my hockey team from Phoenix up to Ottawa because you have to have an owner vote and things like that. And Henry was against it. In fact, all the owners did not want to see the hockey team leave Phoenix. Everybody thought that was an important market. Nobody wanted that to happen. And Henry kind of hemmed and hawed and facility put some more pressure on Henry. Hey, are you going to vote for me or not? And Henry again sort of tap danced. I mean, he's a good politician. Didn't sort of give a straight answer, but he wasn't saying yes either. And finally, Basili said, hey, if you're not going to give me this vote, I'm not going to design your chip into my BlackBerry phone. And, and Henry, you know, again, politely sort of declined answer. And this guy, Jim Basilli, ended up walking out of the meeting in a huff. We never, ever got into the BlackBerry cell phone. So all this hard work ended up getting blown up on a hockey deal. So it was a very amusing thing. I, I found this uh, one of the most interesting business experiences I've ever had in my life. But quite often, honestly, business has decided on some of these intangibles that you could never, never predict, never, never figure out, never, never really get an understanding of. This one, it hit us right between the eyes. But more often than not, business deals and go down on the very funniest, oddest things that you can possibly imagine. So anyway, with that one last thought, I, I thought I'd leave you with, this is another, I like sports, you can see maybe over my shoulder, I've got a, an Oakland Raiders jersey over my back shoulder. Uh, Steve Kerr, the coach of the Warriors, I think this is really important. As you think about your career and entrepreneurship, uh, his quote, I think really rings true. If you, if, I think it's imperative to follow your heart and choose a profession you're passionate about. And if you haven't found that spark yet, if you're not sure what you wanna do with your lives, be persistent until you to, you do. All I can tell you is that if you like what you do, success will follow. If you like what you do, success will follow. If you don't like what you do, it's hard to be successful. And I think that's that's true about anything in life. So,
0: You mentioned that you started your career in this world of entrepreneurship and startups, then kind of moved into more established companies. We've got a bunch of students who are interested in launching, maybe someday, but there's always this question of do I have the right skills? Do I have the right talents? Am I ready? Um, just love to hear your thoughts for a second or two on like how you got over that, you know, imposter syndrome, how you're able to make the leap, what skills you thought were important to learn and, and how you think about launching a company.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a super question. And I, I uh, frankly, I think that people can launch companies at any time. You see uh, great stories coming immediately out of college. I've seen super ideas and super companies launched immediately out of, out of college and then other ones that come out of more established companies and then other ones yet again, that are sort of spinoffs or derivatives of, of, of different ideas. So companies happen at different times. I think it's you know around the self-awareness and, and I think this class is teaching some of that, understanding just basics in terms of how to make business decisions a lot just gets learned along the way. You learn it in, in classes, you learn it in different business settings, you learn it in different situations. But um, you know, I, I think the best exper- best teacher, as they say, is experience. And as you go through life, you pick up experiences. Those experiences teach and shape you, and you can be ready to go with a great idea, you know, in two months. And it may take twenty years. You, you just never know. And it's a combination of the idea the experiences that you gain and and the people I think that you surround yourself with that have the best or the best indicators of success or failure of a company or an
0: idea. I love that idea of surrounding yourself with great people. Michael, thank you so much for sticking around a little extra, um, helping out with the students. Appreciate the presentation. Anyone still here, we'll do another round of applause. That was great. So uh, Michael, <laughs> thanks to all.
1: No, I really, really enjoyed the time. Thank
0: you very much and best of luck to all of you. Thank you much. Enjoy your weekend, and I hope to see you on campus again soon. Okay, thank you.